0: A man so brutal he was referred to as the Gorilla Killer. Today we discuss America's very first serial sex killer, Earl Nelson. Let's open the serial killer file. In San Francisco, California in 1897, Earl Leonard Nelson had anything but an easy upbringing. Just before the age of two, both his mother and father died of syphilis. Without any parents to support him, Earl was sent off to live with his grandparents in a strict and religious household that revolved around Pentecostal teachings. Once Earl was enrolled in school, it didn't take long until he was expelled for his troubled and rebellious manner towards his peers and professors. One afternoon while playing with street children, Earl's bicycle collided with a streetcar, resulting in a serious head injury that left him in a coma for a total... Of six days. Doctors told his grandparents that due to the extent of Earl's injuries he wasn't expected to make a full recovery. It was soon after his release from the hospital that things took a dark turn. Life would never be the same for Earl and the people around him. He began to experience excruciating headaches, moments of memory loss while spiraling out of control with his erratic behavior that caused him to become violent. At the age of 14, his grandmother passed away. Due to developing problematic behavior, Earl's mourning grandfather sent him away to live with his aunt Lillian and her husband. It was at this age when he began to engage in criminal activity and was sentenced to two years in San Quentin State Prison in 1915 after attempting to break into a cabin he believed was abandoned. As a young adult, Earl had a short-lived enrollment in the Navy, until he was eventually discharged and sent to the Napa State Mental Hospital for his unusual behavior. After realizing he did not belong in the mental institution, Earl escaped from his surroundings a total of three times until staff gave up on capturing him. Shortly after his escape at the age of 21, Earl began engaging in sex crimes. He was noted to be a compulsive masturbator who eventually tried to molest a 12-year-old female named Mary Summers, but failed to do so when she screamed and had brought attention to him. Earl managed to get married after his time in the institution, but things soon became rocky. He would spend immense amounts of time away from home, especially at night. He would leave in one set of clothes and return in another. He'd sometimes be gone for days at a time and would try to deny he ever left when his wife confronted him. After he began threatening to kill her, she went to the authorities. He was committed once again to the Napa State Mental Hospital, where he continued to escape multiple times and was eventually just released in 1925. It was a year later in 1926 when Earl turned more violent and began his predatory rampage on vulnerable women. His first victim was Clara Newman, a 62-year-old woman who ran a boarding house in San Francisco on February 20th, 1926. Earl inquired information about a room he wished to rent when he strangled her and engaged in sex with her dead body. Within a matter of weeks after his first kill, he claimed the life of another landlady. Once people took note of the killing sprees, newspapers titled Earl as the Gorilla Killer because of the brutality of his killings. Once acquainted to killing, Earl felt more comfortable murdering older women who ran boarding houses. Once alone with the women, he'd engage his attack on them and strangle them to death. After attempting to hide the bodies of his victims, Earl would occasionally steal their jewelry and money. After renting out a room in Portland, Earl continued to satisfy his needs by traveling across multiple states in hopes of finding new victims. The brutal stranglings continued around many areas of the United States, such as Kansas City, Philadelphia, Buffalo, Detroit, Chicago, and eventually Earl made his way into Canada. It was at this time in 1927 Earl landed himself in Winnipeg, where he found his first victim, Lola Cohen, a teenager who was selling flowers. After enticing her back to his room, Earl killed Lola and decided to hide her body under his bed. Earl grew tired of the same routine and decided to change his target and ended up strangling and raping Emily Patterson, a young wife and mother, who was later found decomposed under her own son's bed. The brutal murders horrified residents and a $1,500 reward was released, equivalent to $20,000 in 2015, in hopes that they could capture the unknown killer. Just before fleeing from Winnipeg, Earl was apprehended by police due to witnesses notifying them of his suspicious behavior. He claimed his innocence by preaching himself as a religious man named Virgil Wilson. His deceiving manner caused the guards to leave him by himself, which allowed him to escape out of the jail, but he was recaptured the very next day. Just before Earl's trial on November 1st, 1927 in Manitoba, multiple witnesses from the United States came forward providing testimony against Earl for his previous murders. Evidence began piling up from witness accounts to clothing left at the scenes of the killings. Earl's lawyer attempted to portray Earl as an innocent man suffering from a mental condition who couldn't have been responsible for the estimated 22 killings. However, Earl had foolishly spoken with a constable days before his trial and confided in him, asking if he should plead insanity. The constable took the stand and testified regarding this. With this in hand, among all the other evidence, the jury had found Earl Nelson guilty for all murders he had been convicted of and he was sentenced to death on November 4th, 1927. And Earl met his death at the end of a rope on January 13th, 1928. Just about everyone who hears the name Bigfoot thinks of the legendary Beast of the Forest, but the true monster is much darker. This episode required a lot of research and deep-diving through not only the internet, but old newspaper archives, and yet there was much that wasn't clear and still remains a mystery, one that I couldn't help but bring to you. Allow me to introduce myself, I'm Rob Gavigan and I'm the one who's going to be guiding you down the dark path to the unknown and unsolved. Now let's begin. (laughs) It was early fall of 1975 in Detroit, Michigan. The air was becoming cooler and leaves changing their color, and the sun was down. As many businesses closed their doors for the night, the Cass Corridor was still conducting its more shady form of business, prostitution. Cass Corridor was what locals called the neighborhoods that resided in the west end of Midtown Detroit, It was an area known well, especially by law enforcement in the 1970s, for its unscrupulous nature and dimly lit street corners. In the 1960s, Cass Corridor was a popular place for artists to rent studio space, as the rent wasn't too expensive and it was close to Detroit's Cultural Center Historic District. But when the 1970s arrived, the landscape began to change. All manners of crime swept into Cass Corridor, as some of Detroit's most impoverished citizens called it home. Conventional jobs weren't exactly popular with many of these individuals, who instead adopted criminal lifestyles to survive. All in all, it wasn't the kind of place you'd have wanted to find yourself in the middle of the night, and that apprehension was felt tenfold by the prostitutes who worked on those dimly lit street corners. Sex workers waited for cars to pull up with their regular Johns or perhaps an unfamiliar first-timer. These girls largely understood the hazards of their profession. Getting into some stranger's car isn't a brilliant idea for anyone who's looking to live a long life. But just about the entirety of 1975 up to this point was even more frightful. Ladies working the corners would be equipped with weapons like switchblades in their purses. Even if carrying a weapon wasn't something they ever felt a need to do before, they certainly felt the need now. Neighbors loaded shotguns and kept a lookout for the girls while they worked. The corridor had become uncharacteristically paranoid, but for damn good reason. And that reason was a particular man who had been picking up prostitutes, a man the ladies were calling Bigfoot. It's believed to have begun in February of 1975. John was picking up prostitutes and raping them. Four women, all in the age range between 16 and 22, had endured brutality at the hands of this unknown man, and they were so traumatized by the event that they went to the police with little hesitation to report what had happened. They said a man had approached in a beige Oldsmobile and had offered $15 in exchange for services. Once he got them into the car, he pulled a knife and threatened to kill the woman if she didn't comply with his demands. These women were severely beaten before he forced himself on them. While it began with rapes, such horrible things have a way of evolving. And that's exactly what they did. Things became even worse. Witnesses were able to give police a description of the offender, a very large black man, muscular, likely in his early to mid-30s. One aspect of the description stood out to the authorities, however. This unidentified man was said to have unnaturally large hands and feet, which gave him an even more menacing appearance. Through speaking with more individuals, and as their investigation progressed, authorities came to believe that Bigfoot suffered from acromegaly, a disorder where excess growth hormone production in the body causes parts of the body to grow in excess. This is most often seen impacting the hands and feet, but can also present in other ways, such as facial deformities. From the description, authorities came up with a composite sketch that was put out into the local newspaper telling anyone who believed they saw the killer to report to the police right away. Months began to drift by and many nights came and went in the corridor, most of them about as eventful as any average night. Still, there lingered a fear in the air as the perpetrator had yet to be caught and many sex workers could only wonder when he was going to assault his next target – or if maybe, hopefully, he had retired from his night-prowling ways. But they didn't realize, especially in 1975, when these kinds of things weren't as widely known as they are today, that the assaults not only weren't over, but things were just starting to ramp up. These periods of peace where things seemed to be mostly normal were cool-down periods. And we know what kinds of dangerous individuals have cool-down periods, don't we? Then came April of 1975. It was a night that blended into all the others for Andrea Coxton, a sex worker in the cast Corridor. She slowly paced back and forth on her piece of the sidewalk, where her regulars knew they could find her. The news of a terrifying and violent John had reached her ears, just like it had everyone else's in the corridor. She took a drag of her cigarette as a car's passenger side eased up next to her before coming to a stop. The driver reached over to roll the window down and Andrea leaned in comfortably. The two exchanged brief pleasantries, then the driver flashed some cash for her. She popped open the passenger door with little hesitation, and her slender silhouette stepped out from the streetlights and disappeared into the vehicle. Once she'd closed the door, she gazed down at the sidewalk for just a moment. All she had was faith now that she would be putting her feet back down on that familiar concrete soon and the car rolled forward, disappearing into the dark. The driver found a secluded place to park, and Andrea put her hand out for the money. Payment up front was customary. That's when her eyes drifted onto the man's hands, frighteningly large. Her heart jumped, and for just a fraction of a second, she knew her life. Any hopes or dreams for the future, it was all over. As quickly as the thought had materialized his massive fist crashed into her face and her nose fractured blood sprayed out of her nostrils like an old faucet and she was barely able to get her hands to her face instinctively when she was struck again the john wailed on her violently and swiftly forced open the driver's side door his long powerful arms reached back into the vehicle his menacing hands clutching her hair and ripping her out to toss her on the ground. It was then that he forced himself on her and continued his vicious beating. Her small bones gave way under his immense strength, audibly popping into the calm night like a dull snapping of wood, accompanied by muffled shrieking and sobbing, lost in the mix of a far-off train whistle and the sounds of not-too-distant traffic. All potential lifelines... Hopelessly out of reach. After a few more minutes, Andrea's voice was gone. She'd likely known exactly what horrific fate awaited her the very moment she realized something was wrong. Because Andrea wasn't the first to meet this grim and tragic end. It was deep into the month of April, and while the girls of the corridor were scared of Bigfoot beating and forcing himself on them, at the very least no one had been killed. But Bigfoot's style had just evolved. He had grown more confident, now he had a grasp on law enforcement's capabilities or perhaps willingness to apprehend him, and either way they were found wanting. The assaults weren't scratching that itch for him anymore, so he shifted into his full predatory potential. Without any helpful rhythm, pattern, or routine when he hunted for victims, it was impossible to predict when Bigfoot would prowl the corridor in his beige Oldsmobile. No one knew he was coming. Despite the paranoia that had swept through the corridor, pimps demanded their girls go out and earn. But the pimps of the area were also furious over Bigfoot's presence because a number of the girls were so frightened and on edge, and that was impacting business. But they were never as on edge as when the first girl's body was found. On the 24th of April in that fateful year of 1975, her body bore all the hallmarks that the four original girls who had been assaulted said were inflicted on them, but obviously with one major difference in the conclusion. The man who committed these heinous crimes was no longer satisfied by the assaults and now had strangled a woman to death her throat crushed and deeply bruised by the force of his abnormally large hands. Nights would pass by, Bigfoot would cool down, but then suddenly his urges would flare back up with a vengeance, and down the corridor he went, looking for the next girl, always between the ages of 16 and 22. Investigators found themselves standing in front of body after body, having been strangled, stabbed, and beaten then oftentimes left dumped in abandoned houses, nude or with their underwear missing. Police ended up passing out leaflets with Bigfoot's description and a telephone line was opened for people to call in tips. Authorities were receiving a lot of tips as well, most of them leading to nowhere, but some of them giving investigators leads to go on. Unfortunately, nothing was panning out. Bigfoot was about as elusive as his namesake and as a consequence, more girls were turning up dead, with their cause of death being either the strangulation or not having survived the merciless beating or stabbing that had preceded it. It was always the same, and Bigfoot had shown something often considered not very typical of a serial killer. He went outside of his own race for victims. Black and white women were being found dumped around Cass Corridor. But they were always between the ages of 16 and 22, almost as if he could somehow tell they were no older and no younger, or perhaps because he asked. As the seasons changed and the months passed by and 1975 was coming to a close, the community was starting to get frustrated with the police. Girls working the corridor claimed that the police didn't care because they didn't see prostitutes as people worth the trouble of saving from a deranged serial killer. The police disagreed and said they were handling the murders the same way as if the victims were affluent and well-off. But community activists and organizations weren't buying it, and they held a rally outside of the police station where they showed the pamphlets authorities had handed out to the people. They pointed to the tip line and noted that it wasn't available at night when Bigfoot was active. When January of 1976 came, however, a tall, muscular black man with large hands and feet was arrested while trying to rape a woman in River Rouge, just a 14-minute drive from Cass Corridor. He was eventually charged with rape and armed robbery, and that was when he became the prime suspect of the Bigfoot murders. The suspect in custody was discovered to be a 29-year-old man by the name of Carl Mayweather Jr., and he wasn't the grungy street criminal that may have been expected. Mayweather was himself affluent. He ran a successful business and came from a wealthy family. Mayweather was cooperative during questioning, and after investigators dug into his life, it was discovered that he'd raped at least three women although it's believed that he may have been responsible for many, many more, crossing well into the double digits. When Mayweather's home was searched, numerous obscene Polaroid photos were found of Mayweather with unknown women. He also had dozens of pieces of women's jewelry, along with a machete and a set of knives. And according to the report, nearly 700 pairs of used women's underwear everything was seeming to line up but mayweather wasn't owning up to being bigfoot despite fitting the description as far as the police were concerned the further the police dug however the further away from bigfoot mayweather was getting until it was discovered that carl mayweather jr was in fact not the bigfoot killer He had rock-solid alibis for a number of the murders and the police's laboratory found that Mayweather wasn't adding up. Then, while he was still in custody, another body was found in an abandoned house around eight minutes away from Cass Corridor, left with the same hallmarks as Bigfoot's previous victims. Though not the killer they were looking for, Mayweather eventually pled guilty to the three rapes and armed robbery by reason of insanity, The judge accepted the insanity plea and mayweather was sentenced from 40 to 60 years the sentence to be served in a mental health facility until he could be treated then he would serve out the remainder of his time in prison all in all it's believed around eight women were killed by the one known as bigfoot Some sources claim different numbers, but it's possible that the actual number is higher than anyone knows. As for the victims, not even they have been entirely identified. Only a few names were ever released, while others were never found out by anyone. And anyone who cared for them outside of that life in the corridor, they wouldn't have known what had happened to them. The Bigfoot killer has never been identified. Whether it was due to limitations in investigation at the time, or perhaps the police weren't too overly concerned with some sex workers turning up dead, or a combination of a few factors, the case went cold. And like the victim's screams at the crushing hands of their peril, the hopes of catching this killer have been all but lost to obscurity. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says Support the Show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way, because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.